thank you, praise team and Doyle. I got a couple of phrases that we sang that are sticking out to me. When the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. I know that uh, a lot of us need that. A lot of us need that. And then another phrase, if I remember what we sang, it was, uh, you are everything and he is the promise or something like that. I'm close, right? And uh, man, if you were just, I wish everyone could have been standing back here when David and Katrina were getting baptized. It's <laughs> like the joy that they have inside of themselves and, the, and, the, and what they shared uh, with God in and with us in. It was just incredible. And when we are in this world, when the night, the night comes every night, right? The night is present every day in a way, but God holds on, light holds on, and it overcomes the darkness. And we need it. We need it desperately, and we have it. And so we're studying the light when we're studying Jesus. And so I'm glad to be in chapter 4 of the book of Luke. After three chapters of very intriguing and interesting introduction, Luke, who put together this book in an orderly fashion, on purpose, and we're exploring what are his purposes, what is he unfolding as a narrator of the life of Jesus Christ. So he has this intriguing introduction of this very different kind of kingdom that is coming into the world, that is emerging in the world. And we just got to experience in chapter 3 this very unique and meaning-packed coronation of the king through the baptism of Jesus. And incidentally, I just wanted to mention, unintentionally last week as I taught on the baptism of Jesus, and we therefore are necessarily studying our own baptism, that ended up being a pretty powerful teaching of what it is we believe as a church and why we believe it and what this whole kingdom is about, how, what Jesus has done for you. So if you're our guest, whether online or here, and you kind of want to hear what, what's at the center of this whole Jesus thing at the Southwest Church last week, I just want to commend that to you. It ended up being a good, solid teaching of some central doctrine of what we mean when we want life in and like Jesus Christ. So I wanted to commend that to you from last week um, if you weren't here. So we're now into Luke 4 and after that amazing teaching through the coronation, the baptism of Jesus, it's here in Luke 4 that he begins. He begins his mission. He begins his agenda, his kingdom advancing agenda. And he's going to do it starting in chapter 4. This is the tip of the spear. This is where it begins, through teaching and demonstration. And this is Luke's. He's had three chapters of introduction, but this is his introduction to the ministry, okay, of Jesus. We, he sets the stage. He gives us the template, the lens through which to see the rest of his ministry. What it's going to look like is introduced here. And since he put this together in an orderly fashion, I think he did it on purpose. He wants us to know the nature of this kingdom advancing. And Jesus is going to do it in chapter 4 and for the rest of the book. Through his teaching and through his demonstration, he's going to start showing us and telling us what this kingdom is and what it's about. So in chapter 4, it starts with him going first to Galilee. Now that's a churchy place that we a lot of times we know Galilee but what is Galilee where is Galilee so over uh, in the Holy Land most of us can still identify where Jerusalem is Galilee is north 
of Jerusalem. Okay, it's a region up here. And then there's Samaria. Some of you who studied the Bible, there's, you've heard of the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan ministry and the Samaritans in general. Samaria is there. And then below that is Judea. Judea is the land where Jerusalem is. So that kind of gives you the stage. Pretty much that's the stage for, through which Jesus will minister all of his life. But he starts in Galilee. Now, Galilee is about 50 miles wide, okay, east to west, 25 miles deep. I may have that reversed, but it's one of those. So it's 50 by 25 miles. And and it's very uh, fertile. This is fertile ground. Judea is more desertish. okay? This is pretty fertile, so there's lots of towns here. Josephus says there were over 200 towns here, none less than 15,000 people. That's a small town for us. That was pretty big for them. So that's a region that's about 3 million people. That's where Jesus starts his ministry. And he goes town to town, and when he would go, we're going to find out in this chapter, he would go first to the synagogue. Now, what's a synagogue? So a synagogue is, for our purposes, we can visualize it as, for the Jews, that's their church building. Okay, that, that is a good comparison. Uh, the rule in the Jewish world was anywhere in a town that there's 10 Jewish families, there must be a synagogue. Okay, so there's only one temple. That's down here in Jerusalem. You can't replace the temple. But in all, wherever Jews have been spread out, there's a synagogue for communal life, for worship, for teaching, for learning about the Bible, which was our Old Testament. They called it the law and the prophets. And so that's where he would go first. So even though Luke, you'll remember, I hope, he's the only Gentile that's non-Jew. That's what a Gentile is. Most of us are Gentiles. Even though he's the only non-Jewish author in the New Testament, and he makes a point to he makes a point to show the radical inclusiveness of God. It's, it's not just for the Jews. Because he goes to these towns in the synagogues, Luke is letting us know he goes to the Jew first. And it makes sense. They're the ones waiting for this Messiah. They're the ones that have been talking about him and in anticipation and looking for him and hoping that he'll come. So it makes sense that Jesus would go first to the Jews. So when he'd go to these towns in Galilee, he'd head for the synagogue. And he would talk to the Jews. Um, so we see him in this chapter. Specifically, we get kind of a, 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 a microscope on a couple of towns. First is Nazareth. Nazareth is where he grew up. It's his hometown. And so we're going to see him go there where he goes to the synagogue, of course, and he does some pretty stout authoritative teaching. Okay, he's going to declare himself through some unusually stout and authoritative teaching. Notable, okay? He'll do that in Nazareth. Then we have a little view of him going to a town called Capernaum, also in Galilee. That's going to be his adopted hometown, kind of his staging area for his ministry to Galilee and Judea in this area. Capernaum kind of becomes his, his new home. And so we're going to look there, and there he's going to demonstrate. His, he teaches with authority in Capernaum in a notable way, and then he demonstrates his kingdom authority in Capernaum, sorry, in Nazareth, and in Capernaum. In Capernaum, he does it through casting, showing his spiritual authority by casting out a demon, okay? And he shows his authority over the physical realm by doing some healing of some sickness, okay? So that's what we're going to see. These initial events are a template through which you're going to see that, those things reenacted through the rest of the book. So they're important. 
They're important. It's why he put them here at the tip of the spear, like I said, of his ministry. These initial events happen right here. This is where his ministry starts, but not before one more significant milestone that we need to look at. Huge milestone last week, right? Huge milestone is baptism. You remember it is baptism. The voice of the father. He's the son of God. The father, the whole trinity's there. The father's voice comes and descends from heaven and, and declares his approval of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit also descends and anoints Jesus and comes within Jesus. And that Holy Spirit will enable and, and fuel his ministry from here on out. So that was a significant milestone. But before he gets into the ministry that he's just been anointed and enabled to do and commissioned into, he has one more thing he needs to do. He needs to discern how he's going to go about doing it. Okay, so hear me here. He's, he's got his commission. And just like any of you, when you get a commission or just a strong desire to do something, you've got to evaluate, how am I going to go about doing it? How am I going to go about accomplishing my agenda, my my mission, whatever it is? And that is what the commentators say that this scene right here that we're going to read called the temptation of Jesus is all about. It's Jesus going out with God, led by the Spirit, the Spirit he just received. He goes out to a lonely place called the desert. I learned from my buddy Doyle on his uh, sabbatical that when you read the word desert or wilderness or solitary place, it's all the same word. It's all the same word. So interpreters got to figure out, do I put, was it a desert? Was it a wilderness? It's a solitary place. So the Spirit leads him out for some alone time with God. And that's what we're going to read here. This scene is popularly known as the temptation of Jesus. But I want you to be reading it through the lens of he's trying to figure out how he's going to go about winning people to him, to Jesus. That's his mission, to win people to him, to lead them to God. All right? How's he going to go about doing that? Here it is, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Devil, He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So first thing I want to point out here in this pretty famous among Christians, pretty famous scene, is that these were real temptations. Like, if, if, if these weren't things that Jesus could actually do or have, they wouldn't be temptations. If Jesus came to me after I'm hungry and said, hey, turn these books in your office into bread, it's not a temptation for me because I can't do that. Okay, but so he must have had the 
connection to the spirit, to God, the capacity to do this. He could have turned the stone into bread and met his material, physical need of hunger. He could have ruled in an earthly way, like Satan was offering, all of the kingdoms of the world. He could have done that. He could have jumped from the top of the temple. That's 450 foot jump and survived. Okay, he could have done all this. Otherwise, there weren't temptations. So why were they tempting? What, what was the meaning behind these? What, what was he tempting him to do these things for? William Barclay is the one that suggests that each of these events represent a temptation to attract people to Jesus. Okay, so you've been commissioned to get a bunch of followers. Let me help you out. Let me give you some strategies that work. I've been here down here on this earth a lot longer than you, Jesus. I know how things work. I know how to get followers. So let me give you some ideas. So the stone into bread was the enemy saying, look, if you want people to follow you, you want them to jump on board, use your power to give them material things. Church, this works, doesn't it? This works on us. We get bought a lot, Right? We get bought a lot. How quickly will we jump on board of anything that benefits us materially? Right? Our vote will be based on what benefits us materially. We will put people in power. We will appreciate. We will try to befriend people. We, we will sign on to things when we will benefit materially. Satan knows this. He's informing Jesus of this. But Jesus refuses. He responds with the scripture. That basically said, look, people will not find life in material things. They won't find it. Not the kind I'm offering. So the offer of Satan moves to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. So this offer of all the kings of the world. Now that's what Jesus is here to be. The Lord of all the world. Okay, that's, that's what he's coming to do. But he's saying, here, I know how to do that. And I can give it to you. It was the offer of ruling the world through status and power and worldly glory and fame and leadership capacity and impressiveness, right? That's who we want leading us. There were a bunch of Jews that wanted him to lead in that way. And so Satan is saying, I'll do all that. I've been given all that. I can give it to you if you just won't worship God only. If you just won't worship him only. If you'll worship me instead. We all know how easy it is, right, church, to compromise our followership of God, right? To follow, to compromise our worshiping of God only. We will compromise, we want to compromise sexually. We want to compromise financially. We want to compromise in our selflessness, in our compassion. We want to compromise where those things apply. We want to compromise um, in the words that come out of our mouth, James, the brother of Jesus, he'll say with the same mouth we praise this God with, we'll say all kinds of things that are negative about our fellow man, for example. We know how compromise works. So Jesus responds with a, with a scripture that says, can't, I can't compromise. A scripture that says, worship of and humble service to God only is my path to lordship. Not status, not power, not fame. He's saying, God is God. He doesn't share. The throne in heaven's not a pew. It's singular. He says, God alone. Worship God only. God is God. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. There can't be any compromise. There can't be any compromise. You know that when good compromises with evil, you know what that equals? 
evil. Evil. Good compromised with evil is evil. So, the last temptation, to jump from the top of the temple. Like I said, it's about a 450-foot drop. He can jump off and be fine. Now, I would have given into this one in a heartbeat. I would have loved, let's go! Yeah, I want to experience that. So I would have given into this. What was this temptation? This was the temptation to win followers by being sensational. By being sensational. You know, right? You know how quickly, we literally have language for this. We will follow sensational, right? That's what we, hey, check this out and we'll share this and we'll like it and we'll follow it. And, and how long does that last? Yeah, Jesus knows too. It doesn't last long. It won't work, not for what he's offering. And so we, we want to do that. But Jesus, again, with scripture, basically says the power of God's not to, for you to act stupidly. And force God into doing spectacular things in order to drum up followers. That's not what he's about. So Jesus knew and will show in the rest of the chapter that the power of God is used for something else. It is spectacular. But it's for goodness and healing and life and restoring people's strength and to fight spiritual battles and to meet real human needs. Not to do cheap stunts. That'll get him some short-term impressed followers. So he passes all of this. And this is almost like you can just see it. Barclay says as his self-talk. He's like, I, I, I need to go and advance his kingdom. I need to invite people to follow me and follow me to God. And here's a bunch of strategies that have been offered. And he says, no, not that way. Because those ways compromise the very kingdom that he's exalting and that we've already learned through the Song of Mary and, and, and all of the stuff that he's done in the births and the pregnancies and, and in his baptism. He is going to advance his kingdom. He's going to rule the world, but it is going to be through suffering. That's his strategy. Not one many of us would pick, but that's his strategy is through suffering. And so at the end of this, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee. In the power of that same spirit, news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So now that he's established how he will not lead the movement, he uses the re- Luke uses the rest of chapter 4 to introduce how he will be leading it. So starting in verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then... He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Okay, pause right here. So Luke, as the narrator, is really, you know, drumming this up. So he reads this part of Isaiah, and something in how he was reading was impressive. All eyes are looking at Jesus, okay? That's what the narrator says. They are fastened on him. And so whatever he says next, because of however he read, and we will find out, How he read, it tells us here in a minute, he spoke it like with authority. I like to think he spoke it as if he wrote it. 
He spoke it as if these words that were written down and inscribed and preserved in this scroll hundred centuries before were written for him to open up and read today, the year of the Lord's favor. It's as if he read it that way. That's not how they're used to people reading scripture. With that kind of authority, with that kind of boldness and confidence. And so they heard this and they had their eyes fastened on him and he doesn't disappoint. He says, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They're all waiting for this day. And this guy comes in to his hometown. He grew up here as a carpenter. He's a carpenter's kid. And he's saying, today this is fulfilled. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in, our, in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, now there's some Jewish code going in here. Remember, he's, he's in the synagogue. The message is for everyone, but he's going to the Jews first. And for whatever reason, he's confronting them now in their view of what the Messiah is going to look like. He's already saying, there's no way I could be the Messiah to you because I grew up here. That's a strike against me already. But here you are, you're wondering, you're going to have me prove myself and, and do all this stuff. But you've got something in you that's blocking you from receiving this. And so he provokes something here. He says, I tell you the truth. Sorry, he says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. So he's appealing back to a history that they all would have known. Okay, great prophet Elijah. And he's saying, in, among the Jews, there were tons of widows. There were tons. Okay, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah, this prophet of God, was not sent to any of those Jewish widows, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, a non-Jewish widow. That's who God went to. Then, he says, Elijah. Uh, sorry, sorry, I'm on to Elisha. Okay, there, yeah, verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. There were many in Israel. He's saying there's a lot of Jewish lepers that could have used healing when Elisha was doing that. But Elisha the prophet, it says, yet yeah, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian another Jew. He was poking them. He was like, you're going to question me. Look, you don't want this. Fine. There's lots of people out there. It's for them too. It's for them too. And this was confronting something in them. See, they thought they had interpreted all. It's even though it's in their scriptures that the Messiah, yes, would be a blessing to the Jews, would come through the Jews. But starting with Abraham, he's going to be a blessing to the whole world through the Jews. That's the gift of the Jews. But they had limited Jesus. They pulled him down, put a box around him, saying the Messiah that comes is going to save us nationally, the Jewish nation, from our oppressors, the Romans. That's what they were waiting on. And he's not saying that. He's not saying that. He's saying something else. That there is a liberation that's coming. He just read it in Scripture. It's for the poor and oppressed, regardless of nationality, regardless of gender or race, and it's going to be a liberation that's different than what you're thinking. Not a military one where you get Jerusalem back and you're ruling as king and King David's back. I'm the son of David. It's going to be a different kind of kingdom. 
more significant, more important, invulnerable to attack militarily. Their reaction? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They didn't want this kind of kingdom. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. How quickly, how quickly we go from verse 15. Everyone praised him to verse 29. The people furiously taking him to the brow of the hill to throw him off the cliff. And despite these extremes that Luke has now set the stage for and we're going to see over and over again in his ministry, these extremes equally opposite but equally intense responses to his message he continues he continues and he went down in verse 31 it says he went to Capernaum a town in Galilee and on the Sabbath he began to teach the people they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority that's a big theme here that he's that Jesus isn't like all the other teachers He's speaking with authority, and this attracted people to him. Anytime someone speaks with confidence, it kind of pulls eyeballs to them and and ears listen to them. But then you take the content of what he's saying and add it to that confidence because this is unbelievable news. To some that are hearing him, it's such good news that they don't dare believe it. To others, it is so provocative of the status quo that they don't want to get rid of that they can't tolerate it. They got to stop it. That's the kind of message that the kingdom brings. That's the kind of message. But Luke puts in this extra wave, this tsunami of authority in Capernaum. When he goes to the synagogue, there's someone there with a demon-possessed man. A demon-possessed man is there, and he casts that demon out, showing his spiritual authority. Then after church, after synagogue, he goes over to Simon Peter's house. We meet Peter here. And his mother-in-law has a deathly, like a, a, a deathly fever, and he heals her. And so in this chapter, of course, the word's all around town. So everyone with spiritual oppression that's going on or any kind of sickness are being brought to this house of Peter. And his mother-in-law is serving them. And, and Jesus, it says, he touches, all, he touches them and heals them of their possession or of their sickness. Another, another, another way in which Jesus is going to minister touching people so we don't have time to read all that but that's what's happened here and it ends like this chapter ends like this at daybreak jesus went out to a solitary place desert again okay there's that wilderness desert solitary place starts there and ends there the people were looking for him and when they came to where he was they tried to keep him from leaving them and he said i must preach the good news of the kingdom of god to the other towns also because that is why I was sent and he kept on preaching now in the synagogues of Judea so it's interesting here there's so much here but, but you got the flow of the story here it's here the first time we hear Luke call what's happening the kingdom of God so we're a full four chapters and it's the last breath of chapter four we're getting into chapter five and he finally declares what it is that's emerging. It's like as a narrator, he wanted to surprise us with these themes and these things that are coming that are so different than the culture before he calls it what it is. It's the kingdom of God, and it's emerging. And as we begin to follow Jesus into his ministry and how he will win and how he will not win followers, we're seeing in him what God means 
when he invites us into the kingdom. And that should help us evaluate us as followers of Christ and us as a church. The kingdom of God thus far, in this chapter at least, the ministry of Jesus is about this radical inclusivity. Surprising, can tick you off inclusivity. That's, that's one of the things that we learn in chapter 4. It's good news for some. It's offensive and threatening for others. So are we radically inclusive? We should evaluate ourselves based on the kingdom, not on what we think we should be, but based on the kingdom that's being presented to us. If not, are we a ministry of Jesus? He declared overtly that it's, the kingdom is good news for the poor. It's good news for the poor. Is our existence, church, good news for the poor? If not, we need to evaluate. Are we a kingdom outpost? Are we an actual, real kingdom outpost? He talks about, he speaks it out loud. Freedom for the imprisoned. And I think that is inclusive of people who are actually imprisoned. Paying the price for their sins. Right? There's a freedom for them. But I think it goes farther as we unpack Luke's story. There's a different kind of imprisonment. We see it here already spiritually or physically or, you know, emotionally we can have imprisonment. We're supposed to be a place. Are we a place that we see freedom coming to each other and to others? If not, are we a ministry that's like Christ's ministry? He declares that the kingdom is sight for the blind. And again, I think that we see tons of examples of his power where he, tons. We, we have many examples of him physically healing people of blindness, but we know there's a, there's a symbolic part of that too, that there's all kinds of eye-opening that he's calling for. Are we a place where eyes are getting opened? Do your eyes get opened? Are we offering eye-opening kingdom truth? through teaching and demonstration like Jesus? If not, are we a kingdom outpost? Let me finish up here, but let me ask our elders and our minister couples to go ahead and move around the room. And they're just going to be there in case you need a touch this morning. But I want to end with what hit me in this teaching. So each week, you'll remember, I'm, my, I got rudely interrupted for a couple of weeks, but my plan is to follow the narrative of uh, Luke, but then give you something that hit me in my study of his narrative. So what hit me this week was the role of the Holy Spirit here in Jesus' life. The role of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, you remember, descended on Jesus in his baptism at the end of Luke 3. But then he proceeds to do two things. The Holy Spirit does two things right off the bat in Luke 4 with Jesus. First, he leads him into that solitary place for time with God, for reflection, for evaluation. And then he leads, the Holy Spirit, it says, leads him into Galilee, okay? So he leads him into solitude with God for personal time. And he leads him into a social setting with people for interpersonal time, for interpersonal ministry. And it struck me when I, when I saw that, I started going, is, you know, in a way, that is what the Holy Spirit does. That's what he does for us today. It's what he did for Jesus right at the outset. And it's what he's doing or trying to do with you to lead you to time alone with God and to time in service to God. To be an intimate child of the king and to be an ambassador of the king. And I just want to ask you, do you let the Spirit do that? Do you let the Spirit ever? ever? Have you done it 
this last week? Have you done it this last month? Have you done it this last year? Let the Spirit lead you to a significant, notable solitude, time of solitude with Him so that you can rest, rejuvenate, be confronted, transform. Do you, do you ever do that? And then on the flip side, do you ever let Him, the Holy Spirit prompt you in the name of Christ into ministry to your Galilee, to other people? Do you have a sweet spot of ministry? Have you done anything on behalf of the kingdom as, a, as an assignment from that spirit to love people in the name of Christ in some way? In, in the last week? In the last month? In the last year? You are missing out on the Holy Spirit-fueled, exciting, adventurous life of the kingdom if you're not letting the Spirit do that. That's what hit me. And I want that for me. I want that for all of us. So whether you have or haven't done that, I'm not trying to shame you. There's no place for that in the kingdom. We find out in Luke as well. That's not the point. He came not to make us feel guilty, but to take our guilt away. But then he offers a life that's worthwhile, a Holy Spirit-fueled and invited life. So whether it's something you do regularly and are familiar with, or you've never done it, have no clue what it might look like, whether it's something that is, you wonder is even possible for you. Can I connect with God in, in solitary place with him? I don't even know how to do that. Or can I make a difference in my Galilee with people and some kind of ministry assignment? Can I, even if you don't believe it, I want to invite you to it. Let's invite the Holy Spirit today to give us that life. Maybe for you, it's the first time you've ever asked him to breathe on me, God. Breathe on me, Holy Spirit. And give me that rhythm of life as I go. And let me let you call me to you in the quiet place. And let me let you call me into ministry for you. That's the kingdom life. And it is worth it. It's the best, most abundant life you will ever find. So join me. Let's stand and let's sing this prayer to God for the Holy Spirit to come and give us that.